is an Odyssey original. This is KDX and Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Dodgers, Giants, Lakers, Celtics, UCLA, USC, Newsom, DeSantis. Uh, wait a minute. Did I say Newsom, DeSantis? Newsom, DeSantis. Hmm. I did say that. Well, we will go in depth into what is now an explosive and bitter political rivalry. Also, time is running out to find the missing submersible near the Titanic wreckage. Going to explore the difficulty uh, of the rescue effort. Also, a new book, Rips in Hollywood for Sexual Harassment, Abusive Behavior, that's been going on for a long time. We talked to the author about what she found out about the industry. We start with the uh, Gavin Newsom, Ron DeSantis contest of sorts. Larry Gersten is a longtime political analyst and political science professor at San Jose State University. Larry, thanks for being with us. Well, good morning here in Hawaii, and good afternoon to you. Uh, Hawaii? Oh, how's the weather there? Perfect, as always. (laughs) But I still work. (laughs) We're envious. Uh, Gavin Newsom uh, and Ron DeSantis, it is an interesting rivalry between the two men. DeSantis, of course, being in California uh, today, in fact, in the Southern California area looking for money, but also on Gavin Newsom's home turf. What do you make of this sort of contest between the two of them at the moment? It's a tit for tat that's been going on for several months now. You you might remember that last year, uh, July, actually, DeSant, uh, Newsom cut commercials that he definitely that he sent to Florida. Uh, and and they were aired on on Florida television. So so this uh, this uh, rivalry uh, is something that's very rich. I mean, you've got uh, you couldn't ask for a better contrast when you're looking at these two leaders. One very conservative, uh, the other very liberal, and really uh, suggesting his home, California, Newsom, of course, uh, the home uh, when it comes to immigration, uh, women's right to choose, climate change, uh, and the other. Uh, DeSantis talking about uh, book bans and uh, rewriting uh, history books when it comes to things like race and gender and what have you. Hey, it's, you know what? For a political analyst, uh, this is my Disneyland. Uh, Ron DeSantis is a presidential candidate, uh, second only in the Republican field to Donald Trump right now. Uh, Gavin Newsom is not a presidential candidate, not running for president, not this time anyway, but certainly uh, trying to raise his stature on the national stage. But in this particular election, it does appear to me like he's playing the role of, uh, well, to borrow the line from succession, the pain sponge. He's going to go out there, be the attack dog, take the hits, fight back, be the fighter that maybe Joe Biden uh, doesn't want to be. Uh, and that might be good for the Democratic Party in general to have somebody that uh, is out they're barking as loud as possible. Uh, How does that contrast with what the two are trying to accomplish? Well, that's interesting. Of course, DeSantis is looking at, this is his run, at least for the first, and it may not be the last. He's only 45 years of age, so there's a lot of running room for him downstream, which is why uh, if he loses this time to Trump, as far as nomination goes, well, he's got his name out there. Uh, And as far as Newsom goes, you know what? It's interesting because Newsom right now, of course, is, as you say, sort of the attack dog. But as the attack dog, he is laying out key issues. I mentioned a bunch of them just a few minutes ago. Key issues important to the entire country, immigration, a a woman's right to choose, uh, climate change. These kinds of things are rich fodder, if you will, uh, for the contrast. And just like DeSantis in this way, if Biden remains the nominee, Newsom is there in 2028. Uh, The ground, so to speak, already uh, 
flooded with information to the to Democrats about him nationally. So so there's there's a, a basis for both of these guys because they're thinking long term. We're talking with Larry uh, Gersten. Do you think that uh, Newsom, when he says that he's fully supportive of uh, Joe Biden, is fully supportive of Joe Biden? Do you buy that? I buy it as long as Joe Biden is the nominee. But remember, everybody's focused on things like age these days, whether it's Biden or Trump, and anything can happen to someone. The older we get, we know that. So, yes, Newsom is focused on Biden. Newsom is also focused simultaneously on getting the word out on his values and how he views himself versus uh, Republican candidates. And and let's remember, if uh, there's a stumble and Biden decides not to run, You've got a whole new playing field here, here. and that's where Newsom becomes kind of important, along, of course, with Kamala Harris and others. All right, that's uh, Larry Gersten. Thank you so much. Longtime uh, political analyst, uh, political science professor at San Jose State. Right now, though, President Biden's son, Hunter, has agreed to plead guilty to not paying federal taxes, as well as illegally possessing a weapon. Now, this comes as the judge in the Trump documents case sets a trial date for mid-August. Kevin O'Brien will help us unpack all of this. He's a white-collared trial lawyer and former federal prosecutor. Kevin, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So let's take uh, Hunter Biden first. Uh, Republicans are already saying that this is an example of the uh, uh, you know, Department of Justice being light on uh, Mr. Biden because he's the son of the president, even though... Uh, the prosecutor prosecuting him was a Trump appointee. That said, uh, does this strike you as a fair deal that he seems to be getting? Well, I think you made the essential point that uh, this process was controlled by a U.S. attorney who's a Trump appointee who had absolutely no reason to curry favor with uh, Merrick Garland or President Biden or anyone else in the administration. And in fact, that's, this is how these cases are typically handled. They're often not even prosecuted. Failure to file tax returns um, yeah, is the the charge to which he's pleading to two misdemeanors. And he's also admitting to the facts of another charge, which is uh, making an application for a firearm while uh, knowing that he had uh, alcohol and drug problems which is another violation that is almost never prosecuted. Let's turn uh, quickly to the uh, Trump documents case, and we run the risk of equating the two cases when when there's really not a lot of equation between the two. But uh, the judge in the Trump case has set a a very early trial date, I think August. How likely are we to have a trial in August? Not very likely, I'm afraid. I think that date is just a placeholder. It's a reminder to the parties to get their motions in and finalize discovery quickly without any undue delay. I'm sure at the end of the day, she will extend that uh, trial date at least once, uh, maybe several times. But it does indicate that she's taking her responsibilities seriously and is trying to move the case forward which is one of the concerns that um, the DOJ team had about this particular judge. I was going to say, I mean, I mean, typically, while everybody, of course, is entitled to a speedy trial, uh, uncomplicated cases, don't defense attorneys usually want to stall for some time so they can get more in discovery and perhaps 
poke some more holes in the prosecution's case. But in this case with Donald Trump, might they not want to do it in a quick manner so as to get it over with before the the heart and the heat of a presidential campaign? That's possible, but it might cut the other way. The, the longer they can delay this trial, um, the less likely it is that he would be a convicted felon at the time of the election. In other words, he has the best of both worlds. He can say, look, I'm being persecuted by DOJ, but he doesn't have to admit he's been convicted of anything. That's the best posture for Trump going into the election. And for that reason, I'm almost certain that his his motive would be the opposite of the judges in this case. He'd want to drag his feet as much as possible. Uh, very quickly, you know, we we see there is a, more or less a plea deal in the Hunter Biden case. And, and we know that Donald Trump was not one likely to take a plea deal unless, in his words, it came with the government paying him a lot of money, which is just not something that's going to happen. But what if we're dealing with classified documents and classified information? And in some cases like that, the government has been willing to offer a plea deal because of the fear of letting some operational information come out. Uh, yes, would they offer right. a deal to Donald Trump in that case? Yes, they might. And it's not completely beyond the realm of possibility that they would make him so sweet an offer. He might take it. I think uppermost in his mind, given who he is and how he's lived his life, uppermost in his mind is not going to jail, especially at his age. And if he could get a deal like that, it would be a little bit like Spiro Agnew back, back in the 70s when he agreed to resign, if he could plead guilty to minor offenses and not go to jail. I was going to ask, in this particular case, would there be a potential plea deal that would involve not pleading guilty to a felony, just as Hunter Biden had his potential felony charges reduced to misdemeanors? Could that in this kind of case happen with Mr. Trump? I'm not sure about that, but uh, and and negotiating a sentence in the federal system is very difficult. Judges don't like having their hands tied in advance. So some very delicate negotiations would have to go on behind the scenes to be able to assure Mr. Trump that uh, he wasn't facing uh, in any real sense facing jail time. But it would be difficult, and I, and I do think that would be the necessary price to entering into any deal. Whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor doesn't matter so much. The idea is avoiding going to federal prison. All right, uh, Kevin O'Brien, thank you so much. Uh, white-collar trial lawyer and former federal prosecutor. And still ahead, bad behavior in Hollywood exposed in a new book. We'll talk to the author about what she has uncovered about some of your favorite shows. You know, I fear things like that because I've got shows I like and then I find out things about it and I can never enjoy it again. Well, but you can, you know, take the show or the shows as their own thing, you know, right. for art's sake and, and divorce that. Sometimes you Sometimes can. you can. Sometimes you can. Yeah. I will dig into that because that's uh, going to be a question I ask. No, it's not asked it at all. Just to keep it to just, ourselves? Just, just right. gloss right over that. Right now, the rescuers are quickly uh, rushing to the North Atlantic. They're trying to find that missing submersible and save the people on board. Uh, it could run out of air by Thursday. With us now is John Council, submersible pilot based on Catalina Island, also the president of the Historical Diving Society. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Uh, thank you guys very much. Now, the two assumptions here are uh, the submersibles on the bottom uh, or it is floating on the surface. Let's go with the first one first. Uh, there's a mechanical issue. The submersible is on the bottom, but the people on board are still alive. Time is running out. We find them. How difficult is it to rescue them from the bottom of the ocean? Well, it's extremely challenging because what you're talking about is is 12,500 feet where the site of the Titanic is and and that translates into heavy hydrostatic pressure at that depth you're you're looking at really about uh almost 5600 pounds per square inch of atmospheric pressure whereas if we're here on on land at sea level it's 14.7 pounds per square inch so you're talking you know an increase in pressure you know that's just enormous uh, and because of that very few craft in the world can even access that depth. Uh, it's hard to build machines that are capable of, of operating in those extreme pressures. And so um, this craft, uh, the Ocean Gate Titan boat, was designed and developed with a titanium and, and uh, uh, carbon fiber uh, pressure vessel to try to, to reach those depths. And it, it has been down to those depths on several occasions. But... Uh, at this point in time, it's just conjecture. So how to, how to get down there? You have to have assets that can reach the site in a timely fashion that can operate at those depths and then try to ascertain what's going on and, and try to figure out a way to get to the surface the way that this craft is designed. It has kind of a swing hull design where it is actually kind of like a gate. It swings open and, and uh, occupants get inside and that swings closed and then is sealed from the outside. So they don't have any means to get out of the machine uh, you know, to self-rescue or, or remove themselves from the craft. They have to wait to, to get recovered and then get up on a uh, some sort of stable platform, and then they can open up the front of the craft to, to get people out. So even if they're at the surface, if they're not found in time, they run the risk of exhausting their life support system. So uh, it's, it's very tenuous right now. We're talking, by the way, with John Council, who's a sub-pilot himself based on Catalina Island. Uh, John, we were told early on that this particular uh, vessel uh, was designed in such a way that at some point, if everything failed, it would be able to, in effect, float back to the surface. What sort of things would stop that from happening? Well, <clears throat> what you're referring to is, is the way subs go in the water. Typically, they're set up to be what is known as neutrally buoyant, so they neither sink nor submerge on their own and uh or if you you make them a little bit heavy by adding ballast and it makes them heavy enough to start sinking at you know anywhere from one to several feet a second and and the descent rate of this graph is probably about a foot and a half a second look at looking at the size and shape so it would take a couple of hours for it to get down to uh titanic depth and um, it looks like at, at uh, about an hour and 45 in they they lost communication so um, it's hard to say what took place, but generally craft are set up with uh, uh, basically a, a clump weight or some sort of weighting system that they could jettison in an emergency. And generally speaking, that's mechanical, um, so you can operate it by hand so you don't have to rely on battery power or anything like that to operate the the, the jettison of, of uh, ballast weight. So they have a system on board that would allow them to jettison their, their clump weights. And then when they do that, now the sub is positively buoyant and it'll slowly ascend back to the surface on its own. 
it's possible that that has happened and they just don't know where the machine is and they haven't located it. I mean, that's possible. I'm not suggesting that's what's taking place, but that's ideally what would happen is in an emergency situation, you would jettison those clump weights and then being positively buoyant, the craft would float back to the surface on its own. Um, once at the surface, you could use your surface radios and contact, you know, uh, uh, your support vessel or, or whoever's nearby and let them know you're on the surface and then they can locate you. But again, they're sealed in this in this machine and they're dependent on the life support system that's operational that's adding oxygen into the craft. And then they've got a scrubber system that's removing the CO2 that you know everyone's body is producing through metabolizing. So they're just metabolizing oxygen, converting it to CO2 and then breathing that through their exhalations back right. into the cabin. Well, that, that CO2 gas is poison. So that has to be removed uh, chemically and uh through scrubber systems and then they can re-inject oxygen back on board to to make up for what they've utilized so our breathing air normally is consists of you know basically 21 percent oxygen 78 percent or 79 percent uh, nitrogen and as you're taking some of that oxygen out and converting it into co2 you need to pull that co2 out and then you can re-inject oxygen back in right. that system Okay. It's going to be probably exhausted in about another 35 to 40 hours. So the clock is ticking. Time is running out. John Council, thank you. Uh, submersible pilot based on Catalina Island. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. You know, a lot of people, especially celebrities, have been using Ozempic to lose weight quickly. That's a drug that is meant to treat type 2 diabetes, but doctors are finding it can have some nasty side effects that are sending some people to the ER. Dr. Thais Aliabadi is a board-certified celebrity OBGYN in Beverly Hills and is also a medical weight loss expert. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about, uh, we, we've done a number of uh, programs in the past on the benefits, for some people anyway, of uh, using Ozempic uh, and losing weight, but we are reading about more reports of people who have had unpleasant side effects, perhaps ones that they were not anticipating. What do you see in your own practice? So I've been using some form of these medications for actually about 10 years. There's nothing new about this group of medication. Ozempic became the poster child of this group of medications when a lot of people started um, publicizing it on social media. So these medications are not necessarily new. Ozempic is a, a semi-glutide. Semi-glutides come under many different names. Ozempic is indicated for diabetes, but a very uh, identical medication named Wagovi is used for weight loss. So a lot of doctors are using Ozempic off-label for weight loss. I've used these on my uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome patients, which is a hormonal imbalance that, you know, 15% of women suffer from. For many, many years, I've used these medications. And I've honestly, I was reading this article you sent me, and I personally have not uh, seen so many complications. I think a lot of doctors are just starting to use it. They're not familiar on how to use these medications, who to prescribe it to, at what dose to start it, when to go up. And I think that's when, you know, uh, some of these side effects might show up. I've honestly have, I treat patients on a daily basis. I've done it for 10 years and I've never seen some of these uh, complications that have been listed. What, so what are some of the nasty side effects that you've heard about? 
I mean, the ones that I've read about are pancreatitis, thyroid cancer. Um, you know, what I see uh, are sometimes bad nausea and vomiting, but I know immediately how to fix it. Uh, it's not something we cannot fix. Some uh, in my male patients, they uh, suffer from burping, uh, but my uh, my most of my patients in my practice, I'm an OBGYN, they complain of nausea, but I know how to dose it. I know how to slowly go up. I know when to stop it, when to switch them to a different medication. So it comes with experience. And I feel like, you know, I have plastic surgeons calling me and asking me how to dose an Ozempic. So I think that's, those are the patients that are getting in trouble. If you are uh, supervised by a board certified physician who's done this for many years, uh, the risk of complications are minimal. I honestly can't think of, maybe I've had a handful of patients in 10 years that I've sent to the ER. So it's not like these patients are ending up in the ER. It's false information. How does somebody know that their doctor is qualified to give this drug, which is off-label use at the moment, right, for weight loss? So Ozempic is off-label. Wegovy is not. Saxenda is not. There are a lot of medications out there that patients can be on for weight loss. Um, you can ask your doctor, how long have you been prescribing these medications? And, uh, you know, I mean... <laughs> Uh, it's hard to say. One thing I will tell you, I have tons and tons of patients show up to my office and they say, my doctor gave me Ozempic. And I'm like, well, can I see it? And when they bring it or they send me a picture of it, it's the compounding form. These compounding Ozempics or semi-glutides are not FDA approved. They are mixed. We don't know where the raw material are, are coming from, which lab is mixing it, how much these people are pulling in a syringe. When I prescribe Ozempic, it's a pre-filled pen. Uh, the risk of making a mistake with the dosage is almost zero. So wait, the wait, 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 but hold on a second. So, so are, are you saying that you're getting, that you see patients who have other physicians, I, I presume here in the LA area or mostly in the LA area, and when they come to you and they show you uh, what they say, here, my doctor gave me Ozempic, uh, you look at it and it's not really Ozempic. Is that what you're saying? Oh, all the time, all day long. And patients are shocked when I say it. Let me tell you, there's a shortage of semi-glutides right now in this country because diabetics use it. I've used it. My mom's been on this stuff for 11 years. So this is none of this stuff is new. I've been using it for weight loss for 10 years. And honestly, I think it blew up in this town because of me and my patients. But as long as you do it right, you give prescribed FDA medications and... Um, uh, you know, like it's supervised under an experienced uh, physician, you will not have these dangerous side effects that people talk about. Let me tell you, as a physician and as a woman's advocate, I really get upset when I see so much negative advertisement uh, against Ozempic or any of these semi-glutides. These medications have been life-changing for my patients. It's been a game changer for obese patients, for my PCOS patients. It breaks my heart when doctors with very little knowledge about these medications go on these platforms and start talking about all the scary things that could possibly happen. Have you ever read the backside of an Advil bottle? If imagine if you advertise GI bleed, this, that, kidney failure, no one would take it. But those are extremely rare side effects. 
I'm telling you, I've used this stuff in some form. I started using Trulicity off-label for my sick patients, uh, PCOS patients, obese patients, 10 years ago. And I've, for 10 years, I've used these medications. And uh, that's why I finally started Trimly because I've had an influx of people coming to my office for weight loss. And I'm an OBGYN. Uh, I treat women for all sorts of um, health issues, but weight was one of them. Um, and I started Trimly so I can help a larger a group of patients and help them lose weight and help them diagnose PCOS. But to just go on these, uh, you know, right. to see these articles with all these negative uh, comments about it, it's really heartbreaking because, right. like I said, it's been a game changer for these obese patients. All right. Uh, Dr. Thais Ali uh, Body is a board certified celebrity OBGYN in Beverly Hills. I guess, uh, Charles, the takeaway is if somebody, uh, if a doctor prescribes Ozempic to you for weight loss, uh, Check around and make sure that it's really Ozempic and, and not the compounding form. But but a lot of that's easier said than done. A lot of, you know, patients are very reluctant to question a physician because physicians right. are kind of authority authority right. figures and they figure if the person, the guy or the woman with the diplomas on the wall right. are saying that this is okay to take, a lot of people will not question that. And getting a and second opinion okay. is yeah. is easy to say, but it's a little more difficult to do in practice. You know, Hollywood promised big changes in the industry following the Me Too movement and the exposure of Harvey Weinstein as a sexual predator and rapist. And Weinstein was hardly the only one. Uh, Vanity Fair's Maureen Ryan exposes Hollywood's bad behavior in her new book called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. She's on with us now. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So the premise of your book seems to be that as bad as you think Hollywood is, it's probably worse. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. I think, you know, there are many wonderful people in it. And I just want to make clear at the outset that I love, I still love TV and film. You know, I've been writing about it my entire adult life. I think the probably... The maybe the note that I would have on that premise, you know, studio executives are famous for giving notes. I would just say, as much as you think it's changed, it probably hasn't. You know, I think there's been some some real change, and but a lot more of the change is cosmetic, and which is, I guess, maybe uh, you know something being only skin deep in Hollywood. Maybe that makes a certain amount of sense, <laughs> but um, there's been far less substantial change than there needs to be on many fronts. And I think that the idea that, oh, well, we talked about these problems with Me Too, and even we extended that conversation to, you know, race and other issues and whatnot, we are not there yet. You know, the industry is founded on a series of exploitational models, and the Writers Guild of America is currently on strike. The Screen Actors Guild is debating whether to go out on strike. They authorized a strike. So I think that, you know, the book examines maybe some relevant issues. Maureen, what are some of the things that your reporting has shown has not changed in Hollywood? What what has not changed? Well, the big one is the the lies told about what the word creativity means. And I, you know, I could have written a whole book just about in Western culture how, you know, the tortured artist myth and how that grew from, you know, Vincent van Gogh or La Boheme or things like that. But essentially what Hollywood did is take the seeds of that myth that artists are perhaps, you know, tortured people or people who have difficulty relating to the world. And what Hollywood said about a hundred years ago, this is not new. Well, if someone is creative, 
they get to take out the negative aspects on their per, of their personality of their or their interpersonal style on other people. And I don't know about you, but I never got a memo. I never got to vote on that. Like, I don't think that that's a real thing. I've known plenty of creative people and they have bad days. I have bad days. Everybody has bad moments. But what Hollywood has kind of rewarded, not just allowed, but rewarded is this idea that if you're creative, you can act however you want and no one will meaningfully put limits on your behavior. And that's filed under this umbrella term creativity but what it's really more often about is money if we think that this person running rampant if them running rampant gets them to do our project and we we can't put limits on their behavior because we think if we let them do what they want and act as they want we'll make money that's actually what is motivating a lot of this behavior they they think that by turning the top people at the top studios think that by you know, looking away from the kind of so-called creativity that they're allowing will make them money. They'll allow it still. So we've still got the bully situation happening in Hollywood. I think we've seen lots of examples of that. Uh, but are, is there still a problem with, you know, Harvey Weinstein? Uh, he's He's gone away. Uh, we called him. He's gone away. Are there mm-hmm. still sexual predators operating in Hollywood not being exposed? Yes, without question. I mean, you know, there are people who have horrendous track records, you know, some of whom now have re- rebranded themselves as, you know, allies of feminism or allies of this or that. And uh, I, I think that, like, for a hundred years, the industry's modus operandi has been: if something about someone prominent, powerful, is going to come out, we are going to denigrate the accuser, drive them out of the industry, shut them up, make them sign NDAs, and allow this person to continue this behavior. If, again, we think we'll make money from those contracts or those deals or those projects with them. Without question, there are still people in Hollywood who are very damaging for others to be around. And one thing I run into a lot, I I wish I could say that I was surprised by this, especially in the first few years after the Me Too movement broke open Hollywood. Well, he's not a Weinstein. Okay, but like, that's, we should have more, a higher standard than that. You know, there are also other behaviors that are not as serious as what Bill Cosby did or not perhaps as, you know, 30 30 years worth as Weinstein, even more years than that with Cosby. So we've got to have, a standard of behavior that is the kind of one that my spouse deals with. You know, he works in the financial industry. It's nobody's idea of like, like a, a cool progressive industry. It's a very conservative industry, but I, I'm wonder. it's, it's wonderful for me to have that, that backstop. I can go to him and tell him things that I hear. And he's like, if someone did that in my workplace, they would be fired immediately mm-hmm. or they would be put on a performance action plan and monitored to make sure they never did it again. And the monitoring would be real. Yeah. And so all I'm asking is that Hollywood employers, they are not the ones in the crosshairs. They want us to talk about a Weinstein. They want us to talk about this director or that person or that actor. And we should, we should do that. But what we should also talk about what I'm hoping people will talk about more with this book is Scott Rudin, who is an abusive producer who mistreated his employees for decades, many of them leading to very serious mental health and physical, all kinds of negative outcomes. He 
is now more or less, I think, out of the industry, he can't come back unless all the big corporations and studios and companies decide that he gets to come back. Mm -hmm. And these are all the executives who they don't really want you to know their names when it comes to this stuff. They want to remain in the shadows. But people cannot get away with negative behavior that is completely damaging to others. They can't get a million chances while demonstrating that they have no desire to change unless these big companies allow them to do that All and right. actually in, in a way that encourages right. more of that. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Vanity Fair's Maureen Ryan uh, exposes Hollywood's bad behavior. The new book is called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. All right. That's it for KX In-Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.